right. You should have a handout tonight. I think everybody got one. If you didn't, there's at least one you can share. And tonight we're going to continue our study of the Lord's Prayer. And uh, we have been looking at this from Matthew chapter number 6. And uh, we pretty much for the next couple of weeks, uh, or at least last week and then this week and then next week, we're pretty much stuck on verse number 9. Uh, it's uh, not often that you can have one verse that has so many things to it, but that's really how the Lord's Prayer uh, is laid out. So I just want to read verse number 9 tonight. We're going to be referencing a lot of other scriptures, so uh, have your Bibles ready for that. But here's again the beginning of what Jesus was teaching his disciples about prayer. He says, After this manner, therefore pray ye, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. We dealt with the phrase our Father last week, and tonight we're going to deal with the expression which art in heaven. Now that expression stands alone, but we want to consider it by adding it to the expression, our Father. So let's think about that, the words that Jesus says here. Our Father, which art in heaven. To many people, heaven is just a place. Uh, if you were to ask the average person on the street, unaware of their religious upbringing or their spiritual background, most people can identify what heaven is as far as what their understanding is. Some would say that is where God is. Others would say heaven is where uh, it's the sky. Uh, some would say there is no heaven. The people who say there is no heaven would also, on the same token, say there is no hell. Some believe there's a heaven and there's not a hell. Uh, some believe there's a heaven and there is no hell. There is just simply annihilation. When Jesus was speaking about the word heaven here, he's not speaking so much about the location as he is what that means. Uh, often this prayer can becomes a repetitious prayer, uh, and that's not what the Lord's intention was. He never wanted his disciples to pray uh, with repetition. We saw that in the first couple of weeks when we dealt with the, the first verses of chapter number six. But this expression, our Father which art in heaven, it suggests to us that there is some reverence that is due. Uh, it suggests to us that there is something that we are to stop and ponder and consider and think, why is this important in a prayer? Now, we might say tonight that we've never offered a prayer to God where we've used that exact expression. Uh, we've maybe never said, our Father which art in heaven. However, uh, some people begin prayer by saying, dear Heavenly Father. Well, what are they making reference to? Heavenly is not about location as much as it is about what that means. So don't confuse the two. Don't confuse that Jesus wants them to know that heaven is a place. Now, they knew that, and we know that tonight. From the youngest to the oldest, I think everybody here tonight would agree we believe in heaven. Now, there's nobody here tonight that doesn't believe in heaven, right? Because if not, we'll stop right there. We've got a whole other lesson plan. But everybody believes there's a heaven. But the belief in just the heavenly location or the place where heaven resides is not the intent. There's facts we need to consider about what Jesus is saying here. We know it suggests reverence, but why reverence? Well, when the scripture here says God is in heaven, it doesn't mean just be where he is located. It means that all things are subject to him. All things, all creatures, the entire world, the entire universe it is held together by the hand of God. 
When we refer to a heavenly father, we are referring to a God who has dominion over all things. All are subject unto him. His power is everywhere present. There is nowhere in the universe. Now think about this. There is nowhere in the universe that God's power is not present. There is nowhere in the universe that God's handiwork is not seen. Now we talk about in the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis, in the, God, in the beginning, God created the what? The heavens and the earth. He's not, he wasn't talking about the physical location of heaven being created. Heaven has always been, but the heavens and the earth. There is nowhere that God's power is not present. But it also means that if God has all power, then everything is arranged by God's providence. So David, in the book of Psalms, chapter 2, verse 4, says this about God. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. And then again in Psalm 115, verse 3, David says this, But our God is in the heavens. He hath done whatsoever he hath pleased. So what we're talking about here is this Father, which art in heaven, has has dominion over all things. Everywhere his power is seen. That's the first fact we need to consider. Second fact is this. When God is said to be in heaven, never conclude, never conclude that that's where he dwells only. Okay, there are people who have the idea that God is confined to the place called heaven. That God is somehow bound in. That God doesn't leave that place. It's on the contrary. We know what Solomon said in 2 Chronicles 2, verse number 6, and also in 1 Kings 8, 27. Here's part of the verse. The heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain him. Now, that phrase isn't just hypothetical. It's not just saying, okay, if God wanted to bust out, pardon that expression, that he couldn't. It literally means God is not bound or confined within the walls of heaven. Often people's idea of God is is that God is in some place that is measured by walls, measured by length and height and width, yet the Bible says that nothing can contain him. Now that speaks of God's omnipresence. So we've already looked at kind of God's omnipotence, his power, but his, his presence. So not only is his power everywhere, his presence is also everywhere. So God himself, through the prophet Isaiah, said this in Isaiah 66.1, The heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Now, I don't know how many times you've stopped and considered that, but this is not a metaphor. This is not an allegory. This is not saying, okay, if I could describe God to you, think about God sitting upon a giant chair and propping his feet up on the earth. But it is in fact reality that this God is so powerful, so present. We're talking about a God who is not contained by the boundaries of heaven. He is not subject to anyone or anything or any kingdom. Literally, this tells us that his presence is not confined to heaven. If earth is his footstool, he is not confined to heaven. But rather, his presence is found over all space. Now, I'm not going to get scientific on you, but what is space? Not just outer space, anywhere there's space, 
God is present. I mean, think about this room. Everywhere there's space, God is. So omnipresence separates God from every other creature. There is no other creature, no other man, no other person who is omnipresent. Satan's not omnipresent. Satan cannot be everywhere equally at the same time. Satan is confined. Now, I can't tell you exactly where the devil is tonight, but he's somewhere. Now, we get, oftentimes we think, well, he's right here. He's in our building or he's in our house or he's in our church. I can't tell you that. Is it possible that he could be here tonight? Certainly, it's possible. But the devil's limited. Okay, now always remember that, folks. The devil is always limited. Don't give him the same characteristics that you give God. Okay, the devil is contained to an extent. He does have boundaries, and he is not all-powerful, and he is not everywhere present. So when we think about omnipresence, we got to think about God in this way. Do not limit God to any earthly conception of him. So whatever your earthly, finite mind thinks he is, he's greater than that. He's higher than that. I picked that hymn, How Wonderful Art Thou, because that song is one of those songs that reminds us, gives us just a little bit of a glimpse. And I don't know about you, but when I sing that song, it makes me think about how glorious and majestic and how boundless God is. However, even my earthly finite conception of him is not high enough. Man wants to contain God in a box and say, I can understand God fully. The problem is, and we'll see this tonight, our minds cannot do that. So whenever we pray, now that's just, a, that's just two facts. When you pray, here's two things about prayer. Number one, you have access to that God. That's astounding. You have access to that God. Number two, you can rely on him with an unshakable confidence. Why? Because God has told us, and we've seen this over the last couple of weeks, his fatherly love towards us and his boundless power, which speaks of his omnipotence, his omnipresence. This God is the God who was willing to receive us graciously. He's a God who is ready to listen to what we pray. And in a word, God is at the ready. In other words, he is listening to us. Our Father was the name that was not just a name, but it was a title. It's a designation. We've learned that over the last couple of weeks. Why can we have confidence in approaching this God? Because of Jesus Christ. I, the only reason I have access to this God is because I'm in Christ. Because I'm in Christ, I have access to a God that I can have an unshakable confidence in. There is no human being on this planet you can have unshakable confidence in. Now, there's people we count on. There's people that we say, now, these are people that mean a great deal to me. All of us have them. But understand something. Our confidence in them could waver because they could do something that makes us question and doubt whether I can rely on them or not. God will never fail. God has never failed. So Christ has given us access. 
Because we have access, that expression, which art in heaven, Christ gives his people a majestic view of the power of God. When Jesus was teaching his disciples, after this manner, pray ye our Father which art in heaven, he didn't want them to have a flippant idea that God is located somewhere sitting upon a giant chair. They wanted, he wanted them to have the idea, this is an all-powerful God, a God which is in heaven. So in your handout, you see that the very first on your introduction there. That expression which art in heaven gives his people a majestic view of the power of God. Folks, I want us as a church to have a majestic view of the power of God. There are things I want you to be able to, with your minds, be able to see and say, I see God. Not just as somebody seated in a giant chair somewhere. A majestic view of God. Number one there, you have, talks about our finite minds. Our finite minds are unable to fully comprehend his indescribable glory. Indescribable glory. When something is indescribable, what does that mean? It means that we are lacking the right words. It doesn't mean that we don't have words. It just means we don't have the right or enough words. His glory, the glory of God, is designated to us by that phrase, heaven. There is nothing more majestic that you could behold that is filled with more splendor and more matchless beauty than considering God, which art in heaven. Now, because we're finite, our minds are limited how far they can actually comprehend. Now, if you've ever heard people do a study on the human brain, it is the most amazing, it is the most amazing part of the human being. There's no question about it. It's amazing how all parts of the brain are working, I mean, the, the entire body together, but the brain particularly, everything is inter, it's intertwined. It's divided into regions. Certain regions control certain parts, how you speak, how you communicate, your emotions. You have all of these different things happening, and here's the reality of that. You could have all of those things working together and still not get a complete view of who God is. We, kind of, we like to confine things. I know for me, I like things broken down into easy pieces. I've tried that biblically. You can't do it. You can't break God down into something that you can just grasp as easily as I could pick up this paper and say, okay, I have you, God. You're not going to find God on a piece of paper. You're not going to find the majesty of God. You're not going to comprehend him just by simply saying, okay, I've grasped you. Folks, we're not going to get that until we get to heaven. And even then, we're not told exactly everything we're going to see, but it is finite but yet this God has told us to seek him. Now, if we're going to seek him, in order to seek God, what does that mean? It means we have to rise above or go higher than what the human discernment is. Folks, when you pray, understand you're not just praying to some other person. You are praying to he which is 
majesty. He which is sovereign. He which is almighty. Now, a lot of the verses we're going to reference tonight are going to be in the book of Hebrews. So if you want to hold your place there in Hebrews, but go over to Hebrews chapter number one. We'll kind of journey through uh, parts of, these, of this book. And I've referenced these, a couple of these verses numerous times. But Hebrews chapter number one, verses one through four, as we think about the indescribable glory of God. God, verse one of Hebrews one, who at sundry times, which means just simply means various, times and diverse manners in different ways, spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his son. So here we have God, this God, this indescribable God we're talking about, has spoken to us, how? By his son, that's Christ, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. Who, that's Christ, being the brightness of his glory. So Christ is the, literally, the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. When you look at Christ, you're seeing a picture of God and upholding all things by the word of his power. When he had himself purged our sins, that's Jesus, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, being made so much better than the angels as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Now, I could pull a lot of these expressions out, but just go back to that phrase in verse 3, the brightness of his glory. It's one of my favorite phrases in all the Bible. Why? Because look what it's saying. Christ is the brightness of his glory. That means without equal, without any differences, Christ is equally divine, the true God in every way. An express image is given to us to give us the idea. It is like a kingly seal or the seal that a king used to put in the wax with his ring, which verified that this is truth. Jesus upholds all things. Here the Son providentially governs all creation by the word of his power. And what is happening right now? What's happening is God, through Christ, is bringing history to an end, to a purpose. Okay, Folks, we're not just hurtling through space or spinning on an axis for no reason. We are being moved towards the purpose of God. Now again, human minds, this is, hard to, this is hard to kind of grasp. But our finite minds are unable to fully comprehend his indescribable glory. Number two, our Father in heaven is of infinite majesty. An incomprehensible essence, boundless power, and of eternal, unchangeable duration. Think about what I just said there. Infinite. We are what? Finite. The word infinite is the opposite of finite. We have a limit. God has no limit. His majesty has no limits. Back in Hebrews chapter 1, verse number 7. And of the angels, he saith, who maketh his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire? But unto the Son, he saith, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. 
Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore, God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. We have this father who has shown approval through the son. When we speak of God, when we speak of God, our thoughts have got to be raised to the highest level. Prayer is not something to be flippant about. Prayer is not something we're supposed to look at and say, oh, you know what, I forgot to pray, let me just rattle one off. Can I say this respectfully tonight, that if we're just going to rattle prayer off to check off our box, don't pray at all. Now, that's unusual to hear a preacher tell you that, but if that's all we're going to do, don't do it. Just, Just leave it. Every time we go to the Lord in prayer, we ought to be thinking about the the majesty of who this God is. That we're talking about a God that we have not put in some kind of a box where we can get a hold of him and and, even even try to draw him on a picture. I remember a lot of times children's ministry tries to do that. Draw a picture of God. Now I understand the intent, but do you know how limited that is? And here's the sad thing. Most children's idea of who God is doesn't come from Scripture. It comes from the depiction of God through the media. Okay? So most people's depiction of God is through what the media says, not what God says. Now, if I was to tell children, draw a picture of who God is based upon these verses. (laughs) They're going to have a whole different situation here now. Because now you've got kids saying, I don't know what the brightness of his glory is. Exactly. But can I tell you this? There's adults who don't know what that means. And as students of the Bible, we should know these phrases. We should know what these things mean. So he's of infinite majesty. Number three, there is a theme here tonight. I did this intentionally for those of you that try to catch on what's happening. They all begin with I tonight, okay? So there's a theme. Number three, the incomprehensible glory of God reminds us He is far beyond the reach of immutability or corruption. Immutability means he's unchangeable. Now, we talk about God being unchanging, but you know there's a difference between unchanging and unchangeable. If something is unchanging, what does that mean? That means as it goes, it will remain the same. What does unchangeable mean? Means it can never be changed no matter what is put to it. In other words, if you try to change God, you can't do it. Okay? There are things that are unchanging in our world today, but one day they will come to an end. Seasons, for example. They they change. They continue to change and they change and they change and they change. And I can almost guarantee you in a few months, it's going to be spring and then summer, and then fall, and then winter. That's a pattern that's unchanging. But it can be affected. It can be changed. God can't be changed. There is no influence that can be put on God that will make him different than what he is right now. The same God that Jesus was telling his disciples to pray to is the same God you and I are praying to tonight and the same God in whom we serve. So we think about this this way that God is is portrayed. Look at uh, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. Again, these are verses, sometimes we just read them and we don't think about where the Lord is and what this means. Hebrews 4, 15. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched 
with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Now, I'm going to go ahead and read 16. We're going to reference this again later. Let us therefore come boldly under the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now, that phrase, we have not a high priest which cannot be touched. This is a reference to Christ's exceeding sympathy. To not be touched means he has a strong empathy for his people. He has an empathy that is beyond even the empathy that a mother has for her children. Now, I've mentioned this before. There's a special bond that a father has with his children, but there is a bond that a mother has with her children that is unmatched. Christ, his empathy exceeds that, and it's not even close. Every mom understands that. Every mom is saying, wow, I know how much I care for my kids. I know how much, I I cannot imagine anyone caring any more for my children. God does. This this God is this, this God that Jesus is telling his disciples, this is the one that you are praying to. This, this is the God who is, he is immutable. He is unchanging. He holds the entire universe in his hands by his word and he rules it in his power. Now, the last word there that is in your handout there, it says beyond the reach of immutability or corruption. Or that should be or it says of, doesn't it? Or corruption. And what that means is, is he is not even capable of sinning. If God, if Christ could change, I try to grasp this, if Christ could change, it would make him a sinner. Christ can't change. It's not that he won't, he can't. There's a huge difference in won't do something and can't. It is impossible for God to change. Yet, we live in a society today that is changing God into a creation of their own minds. Number four, we must not ascribe to him anything of a carnal nature or identify him by our standards. Okay? Don't ascribe to him anything of a carnal nature or identify him by our standards. Don't ever suppose God's will is your will. When you pray, you are not praying for God's mind to be changed to you. You are praying that God would change your mind to his will. Can I tell you, 99% of prayer is I want God's to take my will. That's why our prayer is often faulty. When we pray, we're praying trying to change God's mind. We're trying to have God do our will instead of saying, God, make my will your will. Now, we'll get to this later, but Jesus actually uses those words, that exact words, thy will be done. Remember, Jesus is not giving the exact words to pray. He's giving the pattern of what prayer ought to look like. So again, keep that in mind. Don't suppose that God's will is going to be like ours. Often our will is going to be faulty. Why? Because we're sinners. Can I tell you this? Include myself in this? We are very selfish, self-centered people. That's why we need the grace of God. 
I'm very self-centered and selfish about my family. I, when, when, when I'm going through something or I'm thinking about, I want my family taken care of. I want my circumstances taken care of. When I'm going through a rough time in my life, I'm not thinking about all of you. I'm thinking about me. I'm thinking about how can God make my life easier? I'm just being honest. We can be very self-centered in our prayers. You know, one of the signs of maturity is when we get to a place where the prayers for others become our primary prayer life. We're praying more for other people than we are ourselves. And if it's working healthy, in a healthy manner, other people are praying for you. And all we're all praying, hey, God, we want your will to be our will. What you want, you want for our lives and we're, your purpose to be done, that's what we want. We, we should always not identify him by our standards. At the same time, we put our confidence in him, understanding that not only is heaven, but earth is governed by his providence and his power. I know when we look at the television and we get on the internet and we see how bad things are going on in the world, we start to get a little bit shaky. We start thinking, wait a minute, maybe God's not as in control as I thought he was. Understand, don't just make God sovereign in the good. Remember, God, if he's sovereign, he's sovereign over all things. I began reading this wonderful little booklet about the sovereignty of God in providence, and it's a, it's a tremendous book. It's just a little booklet. But he gives an illustration. I shared it on Facebook. He gives an illustration about how when something happens, we want to almost be God's defendant and say, God had nothing to do with this. Well, the reality is, is if God is sovereign, God has something to do with everything that goes on. Now, we may not understand all of that. And believe me, there have been times I've sat with people, I've sat with families, and I have been able to say, I'm not really sure what to say, but be careful that you say, listen, have confidence. God had nothing to do with this. Listen, if God is sovereign, God is in control of all things. Now, remember, we're not just hurtling randomly towards an end. We are moving towards Christ's purpose and God's purpose being fulfilled. This will change the way we pray. Hebrews 12, verses 28 and 29 says this, Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace, whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. Receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, those who are united to Christ will inherit a kingdom that Christ himself received. That goes all the way back to what we read in Hebrews 1, 2. Let us have grace. What that means is, is having a spirit of thankfulness. Folks, when you go to prayer, prayer is a time of worship. Prayer is a time of worship. It's a time to serve God. It's a time to please God. What is salvation? Salvation is God gathering a people for the service of worshiping him. Now, again, does God need our worship? No. Does he desire it? Yes. I have heard verse 29 of Hebrews 12 used out of context so many times. For our God is a consuming fire. I've heard a whole sermon preached on that and how God is a consuming fire and all of you hell-bound sinners better get saved. This is not directed at hell-bound sinners. This is directed at believers. 
We know that because he mentions we receive a kingdom. Let us have grace whereby we may have served God except with reverence and godly fear. The only people doing that are believers. And then at the end of that, he says, for our God is a consuming fire. Listen, folks, those of us who have heard his voice and we've come to him in faith, we worship him for what he's revealed in Christ. But understand something, we can get to a place where we become so familiar with God that we begin to treat God as if he's just some other person. It's called over-familiarity. God becomes so commonplace that we begin to treat him that way. God is not commonplace. One of the things, when I, when I began understanding how shallow my understanding of Scripture had been, one of the things God used in the greatest ways are some of these things we're talking about tonight. I realized I had a shallow view of God. And if I have a shallow view of God, I'm going to have a shallow view of Scriptures. And it was not until God really began to open my eyes to the reality, I am not dealing with a God who is commonplace. I am not dealing with a God who is, who is not, uh, who, who can be confined into what my human mind says. God used this, his, his glory, his majesty, to really open my eyes, even to what we talk about now, the doctrines of grace. It wasn't, I didn't just wake up one day and all of a sudden see the doctrines of grace. How God did this is he showed me his majesty first. And then as I saw his majesty, I said, wait a minute, there's got to be more to how redemption takes place because this God is not commonplace. And I'm telling you, when your heart is as arrested by that, you begin to understand, wow, the doctrines of grace and, and the sovereignty of God and his providence and those things they are powerful truths. But we serve God and we, prayer is part of service. Prayer is part of our worship. Number five, our Father in heaven is set before us in Christ who hath appeared to us in his own image. Now, we dealt with this a little bit, but how do we have a picture of the Father? We have a picture of the Father through the Son. And that's not saying the Son is the Father and the Father is the Son. Uh, there is a false teaching out there, and you may have heard about this. There is a teaching out there that is kind of anti-Trinity, that instead of being three distinct persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, is that God takes on each one of them at different times. It's one God who just, it's like putting on a different outfit. In other words, God the Father is the same as God the Son, and God the Son the same as God the Spirit. That's not what the Trinity teaches. So the Father has set before us in Christ. When we see Christ, we may call on God in faith. If you know Christ, you may call on God the Father in faith. If you do not know the Son, you cannot call on the Father. If you claim to know the Father, but you don't know the Son, you can't, claim, you can't call him on the Father. So this familiar name, Father, we talked about this a couple weeks ago too. That name, Father, is given to us not only to give us confidence, but it's also to calm our minds. Folks, when you go to the Lord in prayer, the last thing that should happen is doubt should not creep in. I mean, think about this, and again, don't raise your hands, but how many times have you been praying and you're praying with doubt? Now, you're not saying it, 
You're not saying, I doubt you can do this, but you're thinking it. Your heart's saying, I doubt this guy. I'm going I'm to give it a shot. Don't pray in doubt. Hebrews 5, verses 5 and 6 says this, So also Christ glorified not himself to be made a high priest, but he that said unto him, Thou art my son, today have I begotten thee. As he saith also in another place, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The sonship of Christ and his priesthood, they're closely connected. Christ is God the Father's king and priest. Jesus Christ is the complete fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Again, what does that matter? Because we're identifying that when we identify Christ, we are identifying God. We have an image, the express image, what we saw in Hebrews, the brightness of his glory. Number six, we come to the Father through Christ, and his throne is fixed in heaven. So we are reminded he governs the world, and therefore it is not in vain to invoke or approach him. What does it mean to invoke? The word invoke means to, to it, it's, a, it's a similar as a, a word to beseech, to plead with, or even to approach. That's what Hebrews 4.16, when he said, Let us therefore come boldly under the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. It is never in vain to approach God. But yet, when we think about this, and we think about when we come to God. Let me ask you this. Do we actually have God's care for us? Does God really care? There are people that are saying, and again, this, this has been a common theme we've talked about the last few, few weeks. Remember, I, I stood up here and I told you on a Sunday that there's a man who stood up here on a, a numerous times and did not believe in the sovereignty of God. Well, that sovereignty of God is, the reason they don't believe in the sovereignty of God is they say, because if God is sovereign like that, and if God is really in control of all things, that means God really doesn't care about us. Now you think about that for a minute. Does God's sovereignty mean he doesn't care? Or does so God's sovereignty mean he does care? It means he does care. See, to misunderstand sovereignty is to misunderstand God. To have a misunderstanding or a wrong view of God is to view those terms wrongly. What sovereignty means, what providence means, what prayer is. We actually experience God's care right now. When you're praying, you are actually invoking or approaching a God who cares. When Jesus was teaching his disciples to pray, he wasn't saying, hey, just throw something up there and see what sticks. I've heard some people pray some prayers that, boy, I tell you, you, just, you listen to them and you say, boy, now that's, they're really in touch with God. And I don't know about you, but I have fallen for that. They use great theological terms and they use great words. But ultimately, they're praying with the wrong motive, which Jesus taught his disciples, don't pray with the wrong motives. Don't pray to be heard. Don't pray just so people will be impressed. Listen, when you know someone cares, 
You really don't care how it comes across. You're just praying because you know that there is concern, there is care. Folks, all these things don't lose sight of the fact that God cares. The Apostle Paul says in Hebrews 4.16, I believe the Apostle Paul, or Hebrews 11.6 rather, uh, I believe the Apostle Paul is the author of the book of Hebrews. That's why I said the Apostle Paul says this. In Hebrews 11.6, he says this, but without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Faith is always necessary to please God. Must believe that he is. Belief in God is at the base of it all. Listen, if I can offer a flowery, theological-sounding prayer, but I have unbelief, then my prayer is useless. Belief causes God to be the proper object of my faith. Why would I pray to a God who I didn't believe could do anything? He's a rewarder of them that seek Him. And again, that reward is not so much about what we get It's about God being glorified. And then number seven, Christ makes both claims for himself and his father and promises to intercede on our behalf. You know, in John 17, Jesus says he prays for his people. He prays for his people. Now, I don't know about you, but if you were to ask me, who do I want praying for me above anyone else? I don't mean any disrespect to you, but I'd rather have Jesus praying for me than you. You'd rather have Jesus praying for you than me. Uh, If you're given a choice between me praying for you or Jesus praying for you, take Jesus every single time. Because here's the problem. I'm going to be tent, I'm going to have a prone proneness to wander back to my selfishness. I'm going to have a proneness to miss the the majesty of God. I'm going to fall into times when things are going so bad in my life that my prayer life's going to be messed up. I'm the last person you want praying for you. Now, again, you say pastors ought not talk like that. Pastors that are honest will tell you that. Pastors that are honest will tell you, listen, no, I don't have always a prayer life that is right. I don't always have it all together. I don't always have the right view of God. Sometimes it falters. Sometimes I actually pray with some doubt. But the fact that Jesus intercedes, this is dealt with in Hebrews 7, verse 24 and 25. The Bible says this about Jesus, but this man, because he continueth ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. Wherefore, he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. Christ receives this incorruptible life When he rose from the grave, his priesthood continues how long? Forever. It's unchangeable. The faithfulness of God is the very foundation of our prayer life. If God could change that oath, if God decided one day Christ is no longer going to make intercession for his people, that would make him no longer God. To intercede means to go before So Christ's work continues even right now. When you pray, Christ is making intercession for you. We have an Old Testament example when Moses interceded for his people. And that was a wonderful illustration. But when Christ is interceding, we are talking about something that is is, unable to be matched. 
Why? Because Christ is the only suitable way to approach God. People have asked me before, does God hear the prayers of an unsaved man? Audibly, yes. Answering, no. Now, what if he calls out and cries out in faith to be saved? That's different. But you talk about a person who doesn't know Christ. Christ is not interceding for those who are not saved. But Christ is interceding for all who claim him. He promises to intercede on our behalf. By these principles in Hebrews, Paul prepares us to pray right. Jesus was teaching his disciples to pray right. In Philippians 4, verses 5 and 6, I'm going to summarize what he says. He says, the Lord is at hand. Be careful for nothing. Jesus used similar words when he gave the Sermon on the Mount when he said, be ye anxious for nothing. When it appears we have doubt, when it appears that we're anxious, remember what the Bible says in Psalm 34, 15, and then also in the New Testament, 1 Peter 3, 15, the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous. Having the eyes over his people. Now listen, when we talk about the Lord's prayer, we talk about him teaching them to pray. You've discovered part of the purpose that God even took the time to teach them. Why did he take time to teach his disciples to pray? Was it just simply because they didn't know how or was it they weren't praying right? I would tell you that this is a bigger issue than most of us ever care to talk about. Praying rightly matters. Acknowledging God for who he is. To pray without an acknowledgement of God is to pray wrongly. We've discovered part of the purpose of Christ teaching his disciples to to pray. In prayer, Christ desires his own people to place their confidence in the goodness and power of God. Folks, when I pray and you pray, you should be praying with confidence saying, this good God in his power, I can have an unshakable confidence in him. How? Why? Because they're founded on faith. The prayer of faith shall what? Save the sick. Every prayer is a prayer of faith. It would be presumptuous on your part to call God your father if you're not united in Christ. As a matter of fact, God would not receive that title of our father if you were not in Christ. We are acknowledged as Christ's children, and as Christ's children, Christ is interceding on our behalf to this God who is indescribable. He is of infinite majesty, of this incomprehensible glory. He's immutable, and it is never vain to invoke him or approach. Let me just ask you a question tonight. How do you approach God in prayer? Now, this is personal. I want you to consider this. Not how does your family or how does your spouse or your husband or your children, how do you approach God in prayer? How you approach him tells you all you need to know about what you think about God. At the very basic level, basic level, every believer should approach God with reliance on Christ as the mediator. Christ 
is the mediator. He is the go-between man, between a sinful man and a holy God. Prayers are never answered apart from Christ. Christ taught his disciples to pray not just to God alone, but he was teaching them and he will teach them and will continue to show them how without him, without Christ, they have no hope. I hope tonight we see just a little bit of a, just a glimpse of this Father which art in heaven. Next week, we'll deal with that expression, how it would be thy name. What does it mean to hallow the name of God? All right?